This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the UC Washington Center here in the heart of uh, the District of Columbia, UC DC. Uh, this is a center in which uh, students at the University of California throughout the state of California come, spend a semester or more, uh, learn about national politics. Uh, faculty members come as well and do research. It's an exciting place. It's a place where our students from the state of California learn about our national government. Um, and it's a place where we, as faculty members, learn more about what's going on in Washington. So welcome. I'm very lucky here today to have Holly Harvey with me who is the uh, Deputy Assistant Director in the uh, uh, Budget Analysis Division of the Congressional Budget Office. That's a long title, so what does it mean, <laughs> and what do you do? Well, so it means that I um, am in charge of uh, uh, reviewing um, and managing uh, managing a set of people who, uh, who uh, provide produce cost estimates for proposed legislation. I review those estimates for to provide quality control. I work with uh, Hill staff, uh, mostly on the authorizing committees and on the leadership, to try to understand their priorities, to triage our work and figure out what should get done in what order. And in addition, I think try to think ahead <clears throat> for what, what are we going to need to analyze and do we have the analytic capacity to do that, or do we need new data sets? Do we need to figure out the relationships between two parts of the health system in a better way than we have before? And I work with the um, other part of CBO, which is more of a research organization, um, and uh, the, so the budget analysis folks and the researchers work together to build the analytic capacity so we're ready, theoretically, to answer the Congress's questions. So now, as a public policy dean, I see what CBOs does with respect to putting numbers on prospective policies as a triumph of public policy. Public policy was all about, can't we do a better job of coming up with uh, good public policies? Can't we figure out how much they're going to cost and what their benefits are going to be? And that's what you do. So does it feel like a triumph or does it just <laughs> feel like an everyday grind? Well. <laughs> My short answer is um, I hate that I love my job. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, what I think uh, is true is that the discipline of putting numbers on policy proposals and figuring out how the proposal is going to work in order to estimate those numbers uh, provides invaluable information for the policy process. It is not the only metric that should be used. And I do think that... Um, CBO would be the first one to say that uh, budget numbers are information for the Congress to use. They're not the only thing that determines whether a policy is good or bad. But when you think about it, for 180 years or more, the United States went along without a Congressional Budget Office, and often policies got proposed where nobody really had a good idea of how much they would cost, and they certainly typically had very little idea of what the benefits would be. So both were sort of fictional, whatever the costs would be, whatever the benefits would be. And whatever else the CBO does is it finally assigns some numbers 
to what the costs are going to be and often what the benefits will be. And the net result, I would think, is more discipline in the way Congress approaches policy. Is that true? Yes. But again, well, uh, I do think uh, the numbers aren't the the only story. Obviously, I find them the most interesting. That's why I work at CBO. (laughs) But uh, I do think that uh, A... I should be very clear, there is a lot of uncertainty in in a lot of the estimates we produce. And so people should, again, take those estimates and the information that went into producing those estimates as information to use in thinking about whether something is a good policy or whether they want to support it. But you should also take with a grain of salt that we don't always, A, get it right, B, we don't always have the information to take into account all the potential effects and consequences of a policy. And we're only looking at its effects on the federal budget, which is not the only thing in the world that matters. So costs could be incurred by other people. Benefits could be ones that maybe are hard to identify. But at the same time, for example, in the health care debate that ended in Obamacare, there were crucial moments when the Congressional Budget Office came out and said, you know what? The proposal, as it's now constituted, is just going to cost lots more money than we thought. And what do you think about that? And that had very important impacts on the process. Can you say something about that and what happened during those moments? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's true. So uh, the, the policy proponents had set up a target that they wanted to produce a bill that did not increase the deficit. Right. And so that uh, acted as a sort of, um, I guess, a disciplining force on all the different needs and wants that people had. And so we were in a position of reviewing all the language in the bill, coming up with estimates and telling people what we thought the bottom line was. And in a situation where the which happened occasionally where the bottom line was was increasing the deficit, then. um we would engage in conversations about what sorts of changes did they want to make. And so that's another, that's to us kind of one of the most fun parts is when we're uh, interacting with people to sort of say, well, what if we did this? Would that bring our numbers down enough? What if we did this? Would that, um, how is that going to change things? So what does that feel like? I mean, I imagine you're sitting around a table with a bunch of congressional staffers, Republican and Democrat, and you've just said that the proposal on the table, say it's a Democratic proposal as it was with respect to the health care, you've said it's going to cost more money than people thought. Do you find that the two sides then are sitting there arguing over your numbers and saying, well, the numbers are wrong, or do they argue over whether there might be other ways to achieve better numbers? Uh, Both, a little bit of both. Uh, It depends a little bit on how uncertain things are, but I think it can be in a part of the mix. Well, we don't know for sure that that what CBO is saying now is is what's actually going to happen. And so let's split the difference. You know, you can try to construct policy in a way that you hedge your bets. So one one example of that actually is, hopefully this is okay, (laughs) One example of this is there is in the ACA a trigger, uh, I believe in the year 2020, that says if the amount spent on subsidies for insurance in the marketplace is above 0.502 of GDP in a given year, 
there's a provision in the law that will kick in that will re automatically reduce the subsidies by reducing the indexing. And so that's an example of where we, we said that it cost a certain amount. They set that trigger thing um, based on our numbers in a way that brought the numbers in where they, um, where they were targeting. And, and to be clear, that's not a, uh, we fudged the numbers. It's like operationally how they no, wrote the legislation. You're thinking ahead and you're trying to say if certain things occur, can't know what the future is going to look like. But things could happen this way, they could happen that way. Let's plan for those contingencies. That strikes me as government doing what it should do, which is to think as best it can about the future and to try to plan for the various contingencies. One of the, the problems we've had with government is that, in especially state and local government, but even the federal government, haven't thought much about what the future costs will be of some programs, like pension programs. So we end up with situations where enormous commitments are made and then they're only going to be paid down the line, so people don't notice them at the time. And then later on, we find out we've committed ourselves to things we simply can't deliver on. So what you're saying is that the bill actually tries to think about what really can we deliver on and what can we do. Is, is that right? Right. Right. It's just that all of that stuff is... is um at a point in time, even though right. we're doing no, no. a 10-year projection and a lot of things are going to change. Our projection of GDP has changed. Our projection of the subsidies have changed. Our projections of all the other parts of the bill have changed right. since then. So, you know, th there's a little bit of locking yourself into your, your view of the world oh, at a certain point, point in, in time. time. Okay. Uh, so you do want to be careful. We don't actually uh, prefer it when Congress writes sort of some baseline number that we have projected into legislation because so much can change and make that not actually the policy they were trying to do when they put the number Are in. there cases where legislation is written that says we're going to go back to CBO and ask them for the best numbers three years from now and then based upon those new numbers try to modify the policy? It can be pretty tricky because there's um, a separation of powers. Mm -hmm. So... The well, I mean, it would still be, it's not CBO making the decisions. We're just going to go back and ask their advice, and based upon that advice, maybe consider modifying things. The maybe works, but yeah. if it, it, I think, has to be, you know, you have to leave it to the executive. Right. Even if you sort of say they have to look at our numbers. Right. The PAYGO um, law that was passed, I think, in around 2010, there's this thing where there's a scorecard, and the question was, was it going to be CBOs or OMB's numbers? So just on to back scorecard? up, PAYGO is the situation where we're saying if you're going to propose a new piece of legislation, you have to find a way to pay for it as you go along and make sure that you're not uh, increasing the deficit. Right, although it also did allow because it's keeping track of mm -hmm. what happens during the year if there's money on, on the, the scorecard already. But in fact, Congress is not using PAYGO as it was written right now to do budget enforcement. But it's still an example. The example I was trying to make was, so do you, do, Congress always wants to use CBO's numbers and right. for enforcement. But because of the separation of powers thing, sometimes that can be tricky. And so uh, there's a provision in the law that Congress can put our numbers sort of into the legislation, and then OMB has to write those numbers on the scorecard. And if Congress fails to do that, then OMB makes its own estimate and puts it on the scorecard. So in a way, 
you're sometimes a little bit entangled and maybe even fighting with OMB. The OMB, of course, is the Office of Management and Budget, which is the budget office for the president. You're the budget office for the Congress. So is there a lot of tension there, or do you work together, or how does that look? Uh, there's quite a collegial relationship. Um, budget estimators the world over <laughs> enjoy talking to each other. So, uh, and we all know that uh, the your estimates are improved when you listen to lots of different perspectives and think about the methodologies mm -hmm. other people use. So uh, we certainly um, talk to them uh, to, to try to understand how, you know, for example, in the president's budget, oh, um, when the president's budget is released every year, it's released with estimates um, done by the agencies but pulled mm -hmm. together by OMB. And then we'll do our own estimates of many of those policies, and often they're different. And so we um, have conversations with OMB because people want to understand the differences. So I, I love your comment. I'm used to work at OMB, so we have an OMB person here and a CBO person here. Um, so one of the issues that comes up a lot with scoring programs is that there are some people who say, well, look, if we actually do something like X, it's going to have behavioral consequences. And so people are going to change their behaviors. And as a result, you shouldn't just do a mechanical budgeting thing. You shouldn't just say behaviors will remain the way they were in the past and therefore score the budget that way. Instead, you should say behaviors are going to change, and therefore that will have an impact on what's going to happen with this policy. And that might mean, for example, that because behaviors will change so much, the policy will pay for itself. Uh, tell me about dynamic scoring, which is an, quite an issue of some contention. Okay. Uh, what I would say is... Um Let's start with, with uh, mechanical versus behavioral okay. estimating. So all of our budget estimates take into account, to the extent that we can, whether uh, there will be behavioral responses. Mm -hmm. We have lots of, lots of our models are based on economics, based on elasticities. If you change a price, will the quantity that people want of something change, right? Mm -hmm. And so that behavior is in our estimates. Mm -hmm. They aren't. Um, purely mechanical. Purely mechanical. Uh, it's, we don't do just uh, price times quantity. We think about, well, how is price actually going to be affected by the market, and how is quantity going to respond to that price change, mm -hmm. and, you know, based on what's put in a piece of legislation. So that sort of behavior, and, and in fact, another great example is the Affordable Care Act, right? There are subsidies put on the table. There's an individual mandate put on the table how many people are going to purchase health insurance coverage as a result of that. That's a behavioral response. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, because um, uh, the behavioral response that we have traditionally not taken into account in our estimates is behavioral responses that would change GDP. Mm -hmm. And so if... For That's example, gross domestic product, gross, sorry, similar yes. to gross national product, right. basically how much goods and services the society as a whole produces. Right. So if um, the classic example, and I, let me uh, just say I'm not the expert on all of this, mm -hmm. but I've listened to enough conversations, I'll do my best. So uh, the classic idea is if you lower marginal tax rates, right, mm -hmm. by, and lower tax rates, then people will work more and GDP will increase as a result of that. So in our estimates of, of uh, the reduction in a marginal tax rate, we would calculate the revenue change from that, 
but we wouldn't necessarily, we wouldn't in traditional scoring um, take into account the effects of GDP growth mm -hmm. in that. And so uh, the, for us, the distinction between our normal scoring and taking into account effects on economic growth is where you go to dynamic scoring. Mm -hmm. So uh, currently, uh, we're operating in a situation. So, so f first, let me say we have been done dynamic scoring for a number of years now um, of certain policy proposals. Mm -hmm the biggest one of those being the president's budget. So every year, in addition to us doing cost estimates of all the policy proposals in the president's budget, we would do what we call a macroeconomic analysis of taking as a whole this package of proposals, what do we think would happen to economic growth and certain other factors. And so the Congress, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, directed us to do that more frequently and on a more routine basis for major pieces of legislation. And uh, so we, we have started doing that and uh, we have uh, tried to be very clear about uh, what the traditional cost estimate would be and what the basis is for the macroeconomic um, analysis and what those effects either add or subtract from major policy mm -hmm. proposals. I will say there have been fewer of those uh, major policy proposals than we expected. And I th think CBO has written uh, that we generally think more information is good. <laughs> and so in situations where it makes sense to do dynamic scoring, it's another piece of information for policymakers to look well, at. But with dynamic scoring, you have to make some assumptions about elasticities and things like that, and maybe even about elasticities changing over time in some versions of dynamic scoring. Is that a problem that you have to face? Uh, to put it another way, there are some who argue that if we had a tax cut of a certain proportion, uh, that would actually lead to so many changes in people's behaviors that the amount of productivity in the economy would be so much greater that even at the reduced tax rate, we would raise more tax money than we had before. And that's one claim of some of the people who believe in what you might call very aggressive dynamic scoring. Well, but I think that that, uh, that effect depends very much on where you, as I understand it, depends very much on where what marginal tax rate you are at and that... Um, uh, we have said we wouldn't actually expect to see that effect for the the highest tax rates we have now are you know approximating approaching forty percent I think, and at that level of taxation compared to years and years ago, I think that the top tax rate was eighty or eighty five percent. That's a very different spot, if you will, on the curve, uh, and and so the response that you would expect when you're moving uh, a tax rate down by 30% is very different than when you're moving it by 3% or 4%. I mean, 4%. roughly just to interpret that, what you're saying is that if I'm somebody working and making the decision to work an extra hour of my time, if it's a 90% tax rate, I might say, well, is it worth 10 cents to do it? 
but it's a lot different situation where it's a 40% tax rate uh, because I'm still getting 60 cents on the dollar. So I right. might be much more inclined to work that extra hour at that lower tax rate. And so therefore the behavioral response I'm going to have for small changes around 90% are going to be quite different than for small changes around 40%. And as a result, we have to think differently about those two circumstances. Right. But that's part of where but, the bones of contention are. Some people claim that even at 40%, lots of people are deterred from working that extra hour because of the uh, 40%. Right, and we estimate that. So I think the argument, um, I think there's not when as You say much you estimate that. I remember once one of my colleagues got a paperback in which he estimated things using <laughs> mathematical models, and the reviewer said, why does he estimate everything? Why doesn't he just get the right answer? <laughs> so tell me what it means to estimate something. <laughs> well, so to me it means taking the best information available, applying the best methodology that you know about, and coming up with the answer that is uh, in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes. And so that means getting data and information and models which people have built about what they think the reaction is of people to 40% or 90% tax rates, building that model, using data which gives us an idea of what does happen when those things are changed a bit, and using that to make the decisions about how to score things. Right. right? But, you know, as I said in the beginning, there's a lot of uncertainty, so we would never say we know with certainty. Right. Coming up, you know, and that's why we call it an estimate. But I guess just to 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 go back to this is I think that so estimates less... aren't bad things. It's not like you're just making it up. You're actually using a lot of data and information, right? As much as we have available, which is sometimes not that much, but right. often a lot. So I guess I where I think the debate about dynamic scoring uh, and and the effects that people expect to get from such scoring. I think that what people miss is just because an incentive exists doesn't mean that you're going to get all the way, that the magnitude of it is going to be sufficient right. to um, completely offset. And we have the same thing. We um, frequently get uh, questions from people um, about why would we not estimate that if you put in place a prevention policy say that's going to make the population healthier isn't how could that not save money and the question is what is the cost of that and how many uh, people will have reduced costs as a result of that and how many lives will you save and what will that cost and so uh, so things that uh, can seem sort of obvious aren't always do you find sometimes, and I want you to talk in generalities here, obviously, but are there some members of Congress, or let's, let's say their staff, so that we're not talking about members of Congress, who you feel like you have a chance to help them better understand how modern social science, how public policy can actually refine their ideas and make them better? Do you have instances of notable successes there where you feel like you've really made a breakthrough with somebody that they say, aha, I see. You're trying to tell me I can actually do a better job as a member of Congress or as a staff member. Uh, well, that is a little, so I guess yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a little bit, so at the CBO, because we're a nonpartisan objective right. um, estimating agency, uh, we are not proponents or opponents of any particular legislative proposals, so we certainly uh, interact with staff uh, to 
to tell them uh, what we think the effects of their proposal will be, but it's very much up to them to decide if those effects are the ones they wanted or not. I guess I'm asking whether they then see this as a helping thing and, and, and say, oh gosh, I had no idea we could get that level of detail and understand better what the impact of my policy. I mean, if I were a policymaker, I, might, I would welcome what you do and I would say, thank you for helping me think through to make sure that I'm not doing something stupid. Well, so I think, yes, sometimes, very definitely sometimes. I would say most of the staff that I work with also come from sort of a public administration, public policy background, so it's, I don't have to preach to the choir on that. <laughs> but it is true that they're um, looking for the best information available. Now, it has to meet, uh, you know, different people have different views about what the best policy is. There's not actually, I don't think, usually, you know, usually a purely perfect answer mm -hmm. to many okay. things because you've got competing interests yes, that you're sure. trying to. So mm, you want to help out hospitals in a certain way, but you want to make sure, but there's a risk that it's going to have this bad thing. So you're trying to find a sweet spot, right, where you're limiting the risk that could come from a policy, but actually making progress on something that you want to do. So when you go in in the morning, uh, tell me about what the, the joy will be each day of going in. And uh, is it the new issues you face? Is it uh, nailing down a problem? What is it exactly that makes it exciting? And I do think it's exciting. I used to work at OMB. I know what it's like. So when I go in every day, I, I have to start by saying the most exciting part is you are working in an organization of really smart, dedicated people who, um, many of whom, a large share of whom, graduated from the Goldman School of Public okay. Policy. Good. <laughs> so, uh, and, and there is a culture at CBO uh, that's, I think, unmatched by almost any other place in the world. It's a lot of curious people who are very smart and like to apply data and the latest um, empirical literature to thinking about problems. And, and you'll see conversations up and down the hall, somebody that works on defense and somebody that works on social security are chattering away to each other and right. they got stuff to talk about. So that's probably my favorite part of the job. I also find it very uh, interesting to come in and you never know what's going to happen. Um, and I will admit, you get quite an adrenaline rush when the speaker's office is on the phone and uh, they got a big problem and they need a conference call with all the relevant people in 20 minutes and so that we can figure out what the process is going to be of, of getting them what they need so that they can um, push legislation forward. But that's exciting. You're in the business of trying to make the world a better place and helping our legislature, our Congress, do a better job, and I guess can't think of a more noble and wonderful profession. I love it. <laughs> so. Great. Thank you. Thank you for being with us.